Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 27 minutes now to 9 the time. Time for your Mediated Conversation this Wednesday morning. On Friday last week, a 13-year-old boy at the Primrose High Primary School in Germiston was told by his principal that he must get his books and go and study. A little while later, when the boy came across the principal again, he took out a gun he had brought to school and shot him. The principal survived. He's now recovering in hospital. The 13-year-old boy was arrested, faces a charge of attempted murder, although I think under the law the magistrate will now have to decide how to deal with the case because he's so young. It's also been reported that the boy's father has been arrested for failing to properly secure his firearm. Then it emerged that this boy had actually planned the attack and discussed shooting the principal with other learners on a WhatsApp group. As you can imagine, this is all incredibly disturbing. There are some schools in this country that do check students, in some cases even conduct daily searches. I think no one saw this coming at a primary school. So how has the society produced the situation, and why did none of the other learners tell a teacher that that, that this boy had brought a gun to school? And within that, I suppose, is another question. Should you look at your child's phone, and when do you need to give your child privacy? Well, first this morning... Anela Saswana is a clinical psychologist. Then, Shahid Omar is director at the Teddy Bear Foundation. Sarah Hoffman is a digital parenting expert, a social media lawyer, and the co-founder of Clicked. We start then with the clinical psychologist, Anela Saswana. Anela, good morning, and thanks so much for your time. Good morning, sir. It must not be normal for a 13-year-old boy to think that he should shoot his principal and to go and find a gun and to actually do it. What could have happened to this child? What could this child have seen that would have made him think this was the right thing to do? Obviously, there are other factors that we may need to look at. And certainly here, my role and and that of of an educational psychologist may assist to look at what could be the potential factors that have contributed to that kind of an unusual behavior. And obviously, um, there is a general sense that a child who displays such level of rage, um, there could be home underlying issues if you look at this systemically. And what I mean by home underlying issues, there could be likelihood of abuse happening at home, there could be likelihood of neglect, um, there could be a likelihood of many unusual um, behaviors at home and the child then knowing um, that there is a, a weapon at the house could be a projection of then wanting to use his, in his little mind, his power and image, because a weapon like a gun, it then shows you a, a degree or a strong sense of this person's capacity to then cause harm. And obviously, clinically, we would then be looking at um, what we call uh, signs or symptoms of what we then call a conduct disorder in basic terms. That is, this is a child who displays unusual behavioral and emotional um, issues, which then at the end of the day, this child doesn't have regard for others or any capacity to acknowledge what is then wrongfulness. And so if you then see a 13-year-old, um shooting an adult it then displays this strong sense of projection that might be happening between the part dynamics between parents in this case could be with the father but at that time there's a lot of projection that could have happened there's a lot of um, systemic psychosocial disturbances 
which might then have influenced this child to behave in that particular way. Um, is it likely that this child would have experienced violence or seen violence? I mean, the idea didn't just arrive fully formed in, in their head. This child must have seen things like this. Certainly. Um, and, and again, the father here is one that will be able to give a comprehensive uh, understanding as to the circumstances of uh, of this, how this child got to be exposed to the weapon. But it certainly shows that there is a degree of exposure because, I mean, children um, behave and see things and automatically want to try those things out. But the degree and the severity of this act then suggests that the degree of the abuse that might be happening or the exposure of this abuse, um, there's a sense of it showing signs of lethality. And maybe that's what the father does mm. when he threatens um, his mother or whoever in the family context. So it does really tell us that there is a greater element of what is happening that is underneath. So obviously the court would then use certain merits and uh, child assessment uh, for a clinical picture that might tell us what is going on, but certainly social workers getting involved. So it's, it's going to need a whole integrated school approach, social workers, psychologists, uh, and, and people to really work around these elements that could have played out. I mean, also, if you look at the context of this WhatsApp group that may happen, I mean, in schools now, there is a great trend of um, school cults where these children are being used um, by certain spiritual groups for certain things because children are quite vulnerable in that context. So I don't want to miss that, but it does seem that there is a, a greater element of an assessment that needs to, to be done to look at a whole integrated school approach of what is happening in the school. Um. What I can't quite get my head around is that I know the sort of cartoonish violence, or it's not cartoonish violence anymore, that you see on TV, people with guns shooting them in a particular way. But when you actually pick up a gun, even as an adult, um, it is very heavy. And it show, it sort of tells you the power that it has because it's so heavy. For a 13-year-old boy, I would have thought that he would be scared of a gun. Didn't seem to have that fear here. Well, the degree of the child's abuse um, and exposure to violence, I mean, weight at the time and the severity of using a gun doesn't matter because this child, chances are there's so much rage and the rage does not even help the child to cognitively process and have this capacity to really um, get a sense of what is going on. So. Uh, in that context, there's a, a degree of this child seeing himself as omnipotence. It's an act of of bravery. It's an act of something that he has seen being displayed. And so the, the heaviness of the gun at that time, I don't think really mattered because of the internal aggravated stuff that this child is experiencing.
Are there any warning signs that anyone, I mean, I'm not going to blame people for missing these warning signs in this case, but are there warning signs that a child can display if they might be about to commit a crime of violence like this? That maybe their parents or the family or someone else in the community, maybe a teacher might pick up. Is there anything that you can see that could really show this? I mean, clinically, we can look at things such as conduct disorder or symptoms that are playing out. And with conduct disorder, you see this child displaying very unusual behavior repeatedly. Um, some kids, they kill animals. Some kids you see as they wrong others. They don't take um, cognizance or take full responsibility of their wrongfulness. You see how they continuously cause problems and they don't take accountability for it. You see behavioral problems, you see emotional problems, you see scholastic problems, um, because there's so much that this child um, is struggling with, and sometimes they're just looking for attention. But for as long as there's consistent, persistent harm on others or animals, um, children who ban things, so it's it's just looking at those clinical presentations, but obviously paying attention to how they interact with other kids and so you'll see this different clinical presentation that is unusual that will then make a parent or a teacher to pay attention that there must be something going on. And obviously the first point in this context could be a psychologist, could be a social worker, could be a teacher to look at possible ways of dealing with these symptoms mm -hmm. as they are presenting and not letting them become something that will be then a bigger diagnosis which then causes a lot of problems in the life of this child. Analysis Wana, thank you. Clinical psychologist, really appreciate the time. First guest on your mediated conversation this morning in the aftermath of that 13-year-old who planned the shooting of his principal on a WhatsApp group. Shahida Omar is the director of the Teddy Bear Foundation, someone with immense experience in dealing with children and the situation around children. Shahida, good, uh, Dr. Omar, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning and thank you. Um, obviously, the role of the parents was crucial in all of this. Um, and we talk about parenting in South Africa quite a lot. And I think for many parents, they want to spend more time with their children. They want to give their children more energy. But they just don't have the time or the energy. Is that a problem in our society? Our parents aren't able to have the relationships with their children they want to have. So I think we need to understand and appreciate, as you said, parents are multitasking all the time, the emotional burden, the physical, the economic, financial burden, but also attending to the child's underlying needs. And, you know, there's a lot of issues that children deal with on a daily basis and, and engaging with other children. And we need to look at this from a systemic approach because who are children exposed to? We know children are mirroring what they are exposed to. So mirroring the, the violence that they are seeing, perhaps sometimes domestic violence, altercations at home, outside, within the neighborhood, but also beyond it, within the school culture, we see, you know, smacking, pushing, shoving, uh, and exerting uh, aggression seems to be the way out. So do parents actually have the time to engage and talk to children on a daily basis? It's, it's, it's basically they're touching or, you know, it's the periphery, they're scratching the periphery. They don't actually engage with children around their unmet needs, the unresolved conflicts or problems that children are faced with. So I think something that Anelis spoke about in your question, I would, would like to just labor on that 
the children, you know, how does a child actually hold a gun? This gun was not held for the first time. I can assure you that the weight of the gun is well certainly gave a sense of power and control to the child, but it's also socialization. What is the child being exposed to? So this becomes a normal uh, or this norm in the child's life, this infatuation with violence. And do children actually speak to that with their parents? Do parents actually speak to that with children? Children see television, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, and if we look at everything out there, it's projecting violence and this infatuation it becomes synonymous with feeling stronger with feeling more adequate with recognizing that i'm okay that nobody's going to harm me this fear of other people is certainly uh, uh, you know overcome by by knowing that i have a security weapon or uh, this is my shield it's going to protect me so i just want to say that we realize the reality is that parents do not always have the well, there are opportunities, but they not they don't always have the insight or the ability to actually reach out to see that their child is troubled or what their child has been exposed to is certainly impacting on the well-being of the child. I mean, if you can't see your child enough, and I think that's the, the you know every every I've never met a parent who says I want to spend less time with my children. Never met that person. But if you don't spend enough time with them, if you know that you aren't able to, are there certain things you can do? Can you have a special time? Can you try and create a situation where your child can tell you what's happening in their lives? I mean, are there mechanisms or things that you can do to try and improve, make sure that you, you understand what's happening in your child's life? Absolutely, uh, Stephen. I think there are lots of opportunities. It's just putting one's mind to it as a parent, using those opportunistic moments, making it a routine, whether it's, take, you know, uh, during breakfast time, uh, fetching the child from school, uh, you know, having dinner, uh, homework time. But, you know, there are always opportunities and, and creating a daily routine. The, the message that is conveyed to the child that he or she is important, that they as a family have values and that they are recognized each one is recognized for their value and for their importance and the significance. And I think there are, there are many opportunities that parents can create. It doesn't have to be a lengthy uh, uh, session where now I've got to spend time, an hour, certainly not. But it's just catching up on the child's day, what happened, what, what, you know, what were the happy moments, what, what were the triggers that made the child unhappy, what could the child do differently? It's basic questions, understanding, but also reaching out, but also feeling that as a parent, I am actually able to understand and appreciate what my child is experiencing. Um. I, 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 this obviously goes from one generation to the next, right? I mean, if one generation doesn't get to spend enough time with their children, the next generation probably won't do that. Children learn how to parent from their parents. Indeed, and I think this is something that we, when we speak about programs, as you know, as we are currently working with schools about positive parenting, about disciplining, you know, it's about reaching out to parents. Uh, who actually don't know how to parent, who haven't been parented themselves and are clueless. And I think that, that when you talk about this intergenerational pattern, the ripple effect it has, because I was, uh, um, you know, socialized in that manner. I'm going, obviously, I as a parent, I don't know any better. And this is how I deal with the situation. So once again, you know, we need to focus on uh, parenting skills because 
children are not born with manuals and parents don't always have all the answers. I think there are lots of questions that they, they're not able to address immediately, but there are opportunities and having these kind of programs to assist parents would certainly be very positive and beneficial both to the parent and the child. But I also want to speak to the fact, uh, you know, that we are faced with so many learners. And if we look at the dynamics, the multifaceted influences, the risk factors, children, where do they have access mostly to guns? It's at home, the place where they're supposed to be safe. And we look at safeguarding. And of course, there are many concerns here around how the children, the child had access without being detected, but also engaging the premeditation. This is not an isolated random incident the fact that it was thought out it was actually orchestrated it was there was engagement so we need to look at so many risk factors here that if and you asked anela a very important question about identifying warning signs it's not always visible to the naked eye uh, you know if a conduct disorder is easier to pick up but a child that is sitting with latent anger and rage is not always easily identifiable so one needs to look at the importance of getting life orientation or life skills, but parents, and of course, looking on different levels on how we can prevent these kind of outrageous, heinous crimes, that children start normalizing this kind of conduct. They start believing that this is the only way out for them. Dr. Shahida Omar, thank you, Director of the Teddy Bear Foundation. In a moment, the digital parenting expert, Sarah Hoffman. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Continuing your Mediated Conversation, the aftermath of this incident in which a 13-year-old boy planned on a WhatsApp group the shooting of his school principal. Sarah Hoffman's a digital parenting expert, a social media lawyer and co-founder of Click. Sarah, good morning. Morning, Stephen. Lovely to be back on your show, albeit a little bit of a somber topic. Yeah. I mean, one of the amazing things about this is that the children, I mean, primary school children, were planning this on a WhatsApp group. As parents, should we be looking at children's WhatsApps to see what they're doing on their phones? Stephen, absolutely yes. I can't tell you how often we at Clicks get asked this question. And the answer, in my opinion, is, is pretty simple. So if, if you know, that invading my privacy, and our response is quite simple, that if you want privacy, you're welcome to use a diary, a journal, something else, but you cannot expect privacy on a permanent international public platform, which is, you know, most social media platforms. So, you know, I think there's the issue of privacy. And then there's also the issue of the fact that these platforms are not designed for our children. They're they're absolutely not child-friendly. Our children do not have the emotional skills to manage things that come. I mean, the, the case you're talking about today is a very extreme example. But for, you know, the average family whose child is on a WhatsApp group, they are still dealing with things like group dynamics and blocking and exclusion and bullying and nastiness and um, nasty memes. And school, it's, children don't have the skills to manage those. They need to learn those skills. And in the process of learning, um, if your child is on one of those platforms, a parent needs to check in and see what's happening because I would expect our children to be let loose on these devices that are simply not designed for children and not make silly mistakes, not mess up. And also, you know, in the example we taught you, you speaking about this morning, perhaps if more parents had checked that group, mm. a different outcome could have, you know, the, the, the very tragic outcome could have been prevented. 
Sarah, I'm just going to ask you to move around a bit to strengthen the reception on your cell phone. I presume you must tell your child that you're looking at their WhatsApp messages. They must know that you're doing this. Yes. Uh, Stephen, is the signal better A now? little better, yeah. Okay, great. Um, just let me know if you can't hear me. Yeah, so absolutely. I think when you're giving your child a device and you've made the decision that you feel your child is ready to, to be in the online world, we always recommend it clicked that you make some rules and boundaries around how that device is used, where it's used, when it's used. And one of those rules should be that I will check your device from time to time or whatever regularity the parent feels is appropriate. Um, we've got a lovely um, resource on our website, www.click.co.za.klikd, which is actually a contract that parents can sign with their children through a reciprocal contract that says these are the rules that you're going to use that, you know, the device for and you know it's reciprocal and that the parents will also undertake to do things like i won't post embarrassing photos of you on social media etc so we always recommend that there's open communication around these issues at what age do you stop looking at their cell phones i mean they'll stop looking at their whatsapps i think at, there's no blanket age Stephen, and every child is different but i think the answer is at when you are comfortable and confident that your child has the emotional toolkit to manage the various dynamics that are happening on those groups. And that might be younger for some children and might be older for others. But one can only really know that through checking. And, you know, obviously the checking in the beginning would be more frequent. And as you feel more comfortable that your child can manage and will come to you when there's an issue, then the frequency can decrease. Uh, children often know their cell phones better than their parents on a technical basis. I mean, they will use disappearing messages and things like that. If your child's doing that, do you need to sort of start worrying? I think so. And I think that's where, again, the importance of open communication comes in. So, you know, a parent would say, you know, I see there's a disappearing message. There's something you wanted to tell me. But I think what we need to shift as parents is this mindset of, Um, judging and condescending and fear-mongering around the conversations around our children's digital lives. Sarah, are you still there? Sarah Hoffman? Hello? Hi. Not sure what's happened there. Um, There's certainly someone on the line, uh, but that seems to have disappeared. Sarah Hoffman, I don't know if you're still with us. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Sorry, that was very... Sorry. Odd. Okay, no, no, no. Um, there are other things that people do on their, that young people do on their phone. I mean, TikTok and things like that, other messages, other apps that could be harmful. Do you need to sort of keep a close eye on what's, what apps your child can access? And the problem is, is that you can sort of monitor their phone, but you can't monitor their friend's phone, and they can still look at that. Absolutely. So the unfortunate answer is yes. And your previous speaker was speaking about how overstretched parents are, you know, and how exhausted we are. And, and managing our child's digital world is, is an incredibly overwhelming task for parents because A, our children, you know, we don't really understand the technology and B, it's so dynamic, it's changing all the time. But the short answer to your question is yes, we do need to keep on top of what our children are doing. Um, you know, there, there are sophisticated softwares we can access that will tell us what our children are doing online, but really the most important thing is constantly checking in and constant lines of communication because that is really going to be the greatest offset against any of these many online risks that our children are going to come up against. 
Sarah Hoffman, thank you. Digital parenting expert, social media lawyer and co-founder of Click. Really appreciate the time. My thanks also to Dr. Shahida Omar, director of the Teddy Bear Foundation, starting us off today, the clinical psychologist, Anela Siswana. I hope it helps in some ways. I know uh, very difficult. One of the biggest questions, you know, of course, is how to parent. It's very difficult.